and welcome to episode 86 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Mika Ewins or Micah. I don't know which it is, so I'm sorry if well, I've gotten it wrong. Great start. I know. I've, we've already fallen at the first hurdle. <laughs> so Mika or Micah or Mika Ewins, we love you. Victoria Scott. Allegra. Bonnie Callahan. Nancy Pomrenke. Susan O'Halloran. Jennifer. Kaylin. Michael Stewart. Susan Delara. Ben Taylor. Lauren Arnold. Kitty. Dante Case. Aaron Kroll. Christy. Lauren Hartford. Jessica Malazuski. <laughs> it wasn't bad, but you just sort of faded off at the end. Yeah, I need to enlarge this. I thought it was Zensky, and then I realised that's why I was like... Brianne Page. Belinda Johnson. Georgie Boy McDermott. Laura R. Odland. And finally, Diane and Agnes Valentine. Thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate you. We have another promo this week. As we have been doing for the last couple of weeks, we did a call out for new podcasts and we've gotten loads of responses, but we are coming near to the end of our promos and we probably won't be doing them for quite a while after this and today's promo is a little bit different so neil kennedy is a music producer he has a podcast called content from the ranch production house where he interviews musicians people in the business and he asks them about how they got there what their life is like but also he asks them paranormal questions which is really fascinating it's a really well produced podcast i'm going to play the promo now Go and listen. Hi, I'm Neil Kennedy. I'm a music producer slash studio engineer working from the Ranch Production House down in sunny Southampton. Content, a podcast from the Ranch, gives a peek behind the curtain and lets you have a chat with some of the most exciting bands in the UK right now and the people behind the production. However, we don't just talk music. As far as I know, there was, there was no ghost horse. Bigfoot. Seems cool, man. Seems fun. I mean, we're pagans. Have you ever seen a ghost or do you have a ghostly tale to tell? You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you find good quality content. So that was content from the Ranch Production House. And his latest episode is with a band that are no longer in existence, unfortunately, called Departures, who released one of my favourite albums about four years ago. So I recommend you check that one out for sure. So our film review this week... Our film review is The Conjuring. The Conjuring was released in 2013. It has 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb and 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? I would. The Perrin family moves into a farmhouse where they experience supernatural phenomena. However, they consult demonologists Ed and Lorraine to help them get rid of the evil entity haunting them. I would like to preface this film review and this episode by saying that I am not going to spend this entire episode putting Ed and Rain Warren on blast. We've done that. I, you know, God rest them both. But I do believe they were essentially con artists who believed their own hype. Just getting that out of the way. I would also like to give you a trigger warning. I am going to refer to Lorraine Warren as Loza all the way through this podcast. Loza? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> so what were your thoughts on this film? <laughs> Loza. <laughs> I realised when we were watching this film that I've seen this film many, many times. But in my head, when I'm thinking about The Conjuring, I'm thinking about the first half of Insidious. And that's a different film. The whole way through this, Dan kept going, is this the bit where the, yeah, the little boy dances? And I was like, what? <laughs> this is not the same film. So we had apparently watched this together, which I do not yeah, remember. We when we were first dating. Yeah. Yeah, do not remember that. Yep. And uh, I am terrified of this film. It's good, actually. I'd forgotten that it's actually all right. I feel like Insidious has just tarred all of these movies with the same brush for me. Yeah, um, where you sort of blend them all into one yeah. film. And actually, this film is all right until you get some close-ups and then it does ruin it a little bit. But I think actually for a start of a saga, which is what it's trying to be, it's a good starting point. I was genuinely frightened watching this film. We get some good introductions. We get some good jump scares. We get some good demon shizniz going on. I was listening to a podcast the other day. I think it was at Radio Rental. And there was a guy on it and he was talking about how 
horror is actually a release. So once the jump scare happens, you can let go. But the real art is dread, is building up that anxiety. And I think this film does that brilliantly. There's plenty of dread moments because there was a lot of this film that I watched between two gaps and between my fingers. A lot of it had to do with Annabelle. We know my feelings on dolls. I also feel like, as far from the truth as it is, I feel like it was a strong move making her look like that rather than what she actually looks like, which we said. Yeah, so (laughs) the film kind of crosses over the Perrin family haunting story and elements of Annabelle come into it to kind of establish who Ed and Lorraine Warren are and what they do. Uh, But the the bulk of the film is centred around Ed and Lorraine Warren the Perrin family were completely on board with this film. And oh, interesting. They, yeah, they they signed off on it. I think it was Andrea Perrin said that although it's not her telling of the story, it's it really, it's Ed and Lorraine Warren's recounting of what happened. She said, you know, there's there are some minor inconsistencies, but that is essentially what happened. See, so the family and Lorraine Warren both consulted on the making of the film. The mother, the parent, the mother in the family, Carolyn Perrin, had nothing to do with it. She was going to, but then couldn't bring herself to go back there, apparently. But all the sisters were present during filming. See, inconsistencies is the one thing I don't like about this film. And it is with hindsight, so it's a bit unfair. But the narrative of this creates a lot of plot holes for future films. And you know what I'm like for consistency so the annabelle origin story is it's a little bit blurred it's not 100 percent wrong but it's just not quite right and actually a standalone annabelle film then destroys it later anyway so it's just they're creating a universe but they haven't put the effort in but i wonder did he set out to create a universe or did he only decide to create the universe after the success of the conjuring yeah potentially but then if that's where it goes then your future films you make fall in line with what you've already had yeah well, that's, that's how you create a universe that is a good point Marvel potentially would never have gone beyond Iron Man if it wasn't successful. It's a bit lazy on the script writing side, I think. And it, it, it disappoints me because this film is actually quite good. Well, so outside of the not fitting into the universe, like as a standalone film, I think the acting is brilliant. They have some really good actors. The woman who plays the mother, who is the centre of all of the kind of demonic activity, I think she's brilliant. She has She's one of those actors that has a great freaky face. Yep. So her face works for horror yeah. acting. It really frightened me. She does being upset really well as well, that actress. Yeah, she does. She's because a very seemed, good actress. It feels like genuine upsetness, upsetness rather than just crying for the sake of crying. And I thought the five girls, the five daughters, were really good actresses mm. as well. There was so much build-up where you had this massive sense of anxiety and then the smallest paranormal thing would happen where in real life, if you were in that family situation, you would try and talk yourself out of it or go, oh, that was only something small. There was so much buildup in the film that by the end of it, I wanted it to be over, but not because it was bad, but because I just felt so anxious. I was really frightened watching this, which is what all good horror films are meant to do. And there's, there's two moments in particular that the anticipation that creates that anticipation, that dread really well for me. And that's the little girl talking about her friend, whose name I can't remember. I want to say it's Ronan, but I don't think it is. The little boy ghost that she can see. I thought it was Rory. Rory, that's it. Yeah. And she says to her mum, oh, when the music stops, you can see him in the mirror. And I was like, oh, no. So the whole way the music's playing, you're just like, no, 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 no. And then the other thing is hide and go clap. That's just such a good little horror idea yeah so they play the girls play this game throughout the film where it's a hiding it's like you've got a blindfold and you clap to give away your location to the person in the blindfold so the seeker says clap every now and then then yeah and you get a certain amount of claps and they use that so beautifully because it takes something completely innocent and warps it and it is it is terrifying so what are you going to give it out of five four and a half not not for hindsight because that would be unfair. But because it was ruined when we saw the close-up of the old lady on top of the wardrobe, it was scary until they closed up, did the close-up. And then it was later on again, it was scary until they did the close-up. Yeah, I think horror films need to really adopt the less is more attitude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give it... I'm also going to give it four and a half stars. And my half a star is possibly very unfair as well, but it, it really irrationally... My half star's not unfair. 
okay, your half star is not unfair. My half star is, is possibly very unfair. So in, with the introduction of Ed and Lorraine Warren, you get the the constant trying to make demonology legitimate in language, which just isn't real. So they do the whole three knocks, must be a demon. Three scratches, must be a demon. 3 a.m., must be a demon. And I was kind of thinking about this after we watched it and I did a call out on Facebook to people who are... To demons. To to demons in general. (laughs) I was like, if you're a demon, hit me up. I want to talk to you. (laughs) But I did a call out being like, hey, is there any evidence of this in scripture or is it just something we've invented? And it's just something we've invented. Because I... not to brag or anything, but I have a degree in theology. Like I've read, say, the Bible. I have read the Bible. <laughs> I have read the Bible. I've How read much it. Can you remember? Very little, and I remember very little about demons, like about demonology in in the mm. modern terms. And I really feel like, and I said this to you during the film, if I was God, and demons were out up here on Earth, fucking doing three knocks, I'd be like, really? I banished you to hell, and that is the best you could do. Three knocks. Three knocks. Three measly scratches. Well, it's not even that, is it? It's the point that it's supposed to be a mocking of the Trinity. Like, if that's the best mocking you can do. Yeah. Like, surely you do something like the beginning of The Exorcist, right? Yeah. Where they literally deface a statue yeah, or of just, the Virgin or just, Mary. Yeah, or just, like, curse. Oh, curse or, I don't know, kill some people. I don't fucking know. But it's I a bit just, like a little kid a coming up. A little bit of a, like a kid coming up to me and, like, saying, you're tall to try and mock me. I'd be like... Haha, you're really tall. Yeah, I'd be like, yes... Yes, I am. Thanks for that. So that annoys me. It's it's the constant trying to legitimise the modern idea of demonology. I think that that your me. half star reduction for that point is quite unfair. So I agree with you. But mine wasn't. Mine was legitimate. Okay. Four and a half stars for The Conjuring 2013. Today we're going to be talking about the Perrin family haunting. Because I wanted to know how true to life this film was to the story. And what we're not going to do is do loads of comparison throughout and go, well, that didn't happen in the film because we're just going to, the film is a separate entity. Yep. And I am really interested in the parent family haunting because it's fucking dark. So are you ready? No, definitely not. <laughs> Moving house is an exciting time for any family, but it inevitably comes with some issues. There's almost always an unwelcome discovery, like a leaky pipe in the kitchen an obnoxiously creaky floorboard on the stairs and sometimes in rarer cases a demon nope in january 1971 the perrin family moved to a large 14 room farmhouse in rhode island theirs was a big family made up of carolyn and roger and their five daughters andrea christine april nancy and cynthia Upon meeting their neighbours, Carolyn and Roger noted that they looked concerned rather than welcoming and were confused by their advice. For the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. Carolyn and her family immediately set to work trying to make the house their home and the first step was a big clean-up. It didn't take long for Carolyn to begin to get suspicious about the movement of objects in the house. Having a large family meant that things got moved around all of the time, so it would be natural for her not to even notice. But what she did notice seemed small, even insignificant at times. But there was something in the air that made her take notice. It started with a scraping almost inaudible but unmistakingly the sound of nails scraping and tapping softly against the metal kettle in the kitchen the first few times she heard this carolyn assumed it was one of the girls but always entered a completely empty kitchen the broom would disappear and reappear in strange places And often, bizarrely, Carolyn would hear the scratching of the broom against the floor of one of the rooms and enter, expecting to be pleasantly surprised by the initiative taken by one of her daughters, but would be met with an empty room and a fresh pile of dirt in the centre of a freshly cleaned floor. What Caroline didn't realise was that while she was beginning to notice odd occurrences, 
her daughters had been interacting with something since the first moment they entered the house. Cynthia kept losing her toys, which was increasingly annoying for her. She would leave them in her bedroom and return to find them not there. But they would later turn up, stuffed under a sister's bed. She confronted her sisters, and when they wholeheartedly denied touching them, she believed them. These sisters were close, and of course they teased each other and played tricks. But they could also tell when another was lying. And in this instance, Cynthia knew that it wasn't the work of her sisters, but it was the work of whatever was living in the house. The girls had been aware of some otherness in the house from the moment they moved in, but they weren't frightened of the presences that they felt. Cynthia in particular loved her new house. She felt safe and happy and relished the nighttime when her mother would come and tuck her in and kiss her on the forehead. It was only two months after they moved in that Cynthia noticed something strange. Her mother always used an ivory soap, and it was her mother's smell, distinctive. At night time when she received her nightly tucking in and a kiss on the forehead, she was enveloped by a smell of fresh flowers and fruit, and she had the dawning realisation that the woman tucking her in at night wasn't her mother. The girls enjoyed playing hide-and-seek, especially in the warmer weather. During one of their first games of hide-and-seek, about six months after moving into the house, Cynthia decided to hide in the woodshed. To make things a little more fun, she climbed into a wooden box that had nothing more than a wooden panel covering it. No latch, no key, nothing. Once she realised that her sisters weren't going to come after her, she decided to let herself out by pushing the panel up. But it wouldn't budge. There were no air holes. Cynthia pushed and screamed, hoping that someone would hear her and let her out, but 20 minutes later, she realised that no one was coming. She lay there in a pool of sweat and tears when her sister Nancy came and simply opened up the lid. Cynthia was hysterical and unable to breathe. The girls didn't know how to tell their mother, or even what to tell her. A strange woman was kissing Cynthia goodnight and hiding her toys, but also locked her in a box. So they kept quiet. Until one night Cynthia climbed into bed with Andrea, sobbing and shaking. She was terrified. When Andrea eventually calmed her down, Cynthia told Andrea that she had heard voices. Voices which started indecipherable and grew into a cacophonous din. But they were all saying the same thing. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the walls. This was also when the smell started. At 5.15 on this night, and every night going forward, a putrid smell of rotting flesh would move through the house. A sulphurous odour that would travel from room to room as though inspecting each member of the household. The girls began to glimpse a small boy running through the house, and a man with a permanent frozen crooked smile would stand in the corner and watch the girls play. When they began to see this man so often that they named him Manny, the girls knew that it was time to tell their parents. Carolyn had already sensed that something was very wrong with the house. The tiny, seemingly insignificant events were growing into something more sinister. One night in particular, Carolyn was sitting up in bed when a woman in grey appeared next to her neck broken and head flopped to one side and snarled at her get out get out i'll drive you out with death and gloom 
Carolyn went to the library. She was frightened for her daughters and felt as though something was happening to her that she couldn't control. What she found in her research only verified all of her deepest fears about the house. The house was referred to locally as the Old Arnold Estate and had been standing for eight generations. In the late 18th century, Mrs. John Arnold, the 93-year-old matriarch of the family, hung herself in the barn on the property. She was just one of the many suicides to take place on the property. 11-year-old Prudence Arnold was assaulted and murdered by a farmhand in the house, while her relative Johnny took his own life by hanging himself in the attic. Over the years, there were also two drownings in a creek that ran through the estate, and the deaths of four men who mysteriously froze on the land several years before. Aside from these horrific events, there was someone else that horrified Carolyn, and that was Bathsheba Sherman. According to local legend, Bathsheba Thayer married Judson Sherman in the mid-1800s, and sometime after that came to live at the old Arnold estate. The first child of the union died, and Bathsheba was charged with murder. The infant had been found with its head impaled by a sharp object, rumoured to be a knitting needle, and the townsfolk whispered that the murder had been a sacrifice to Satan, and that Bathsheba was a practising Satanist who had summoned the devil to grant her the gift of beauty. She was arrested, but was freed shortly after due to lack of evidence. Remaining in the house, she lived the rest of her life as an outcast from the community, until she died in the early 20th century by hanging herself from a tree behind the house. It is said, in death her body had mysteriously turned to stone. Events in the house took a sharp and dark turn. While in the beginning the spirits seemed benevolent and even helpful, the family were now terrified of the house and its inhabitants. All of the girls would be woken by an entity yanking on their hair or dragging them from their beds in the darkest hours of the night. Their beds would jerk and jump and levitate and these events were always accompanied by a foul sulfuric smell. They all avoided the basement but Roger would frequently have to venture down there as the boiler would mysteriously turn itself off on a regular basis almost as though he was being tempted down there. But it was Carolyn who seemed to take the brunt of the abuse. The family believed that Bathsheba thought herself to be the matriarch of the house and was jealous of Carolyn and desperate to either consume her or get rid of her. There was one particular night where Carolyn was alone in the living room watching TV when she suddenly felt a short, sharp pain in her calf. She looked down expecting that it was a muscular spasm and saw blood pooling around her feet on the floor. She examined her calf and what she saw terrified her. In the centre of her calf was a wound that looked as though something sharp and perfectly round had impaled her. A wound that looked like it was almost certainly caused by a knitting needle. As the violence against Carolyn increased, the entity became more and more loving towards Roger. He would regularly feel fingers gently and lovingly caressing him, and something would giggle innuendos in his ear. Around this time, Ed and Lorraine Warren were given a talk in the local area about the paranormal. A family friend of the parents, Barbara, happened to attend this talk and approached the Warrens to tell them about the haunting that the parents were experiencing. The Warrens were keen to visit the home, and also keen to help. Over ten years, the Warrens visited the parents many times, and eventually it was decided that they would perform a seance in the basement to try and contact whatever was harassing the family, and in particular Carolyn. 
The seance was meant to happen away from the children, but the curiosity was too much for Andrea. She snuck partway down the basement stairs to watch the event take place, and what she saw both horrified and scarred her. During the seance, Carolyn began to grow more and more agitated. Angry, even. She was seated in a standard wooden chair, and Andrea watched in horror as her mother's chair began to rise slowly off the ground. As the chair levitated in the air, Carolyn began to growl and snarl in a deep guttural voice that Andrea had never heard her use before. She spoke in different languages, and her body contorted in a way that was not physically possible. Ed and Lorraine were forced to attempt an exorcism of sorts to try and rid Carolyn of this demon. That night, Roger Perrin asked the Warrens to leave and never come back. Prior to her death, Lorraine Warren still refused to speak of what happened that night in that basement, only ever stating that the events had traumatised her. Many people would question why the family didn't simply leave the house. And the frank answer is that they couldn't afford to. America was in the grips of a major economic downturn at the time and the family had pumped all of their money into buying their dream home. They had to learn to live with what they saw as nine separate entities. They eventually managed to sell the house and leave in the 1980s. Andrea Perrin later said that everyone who has lived in the house that we know of has experienced this. Some have left screaming and running for their lives. The man who moved in to begin the restoration on the house when we sold it left screaming without his car, without his tools, without even his clothing. He never went back to the house and consequently the people who owned it, the adjacent landowners, never moved in and it sat vacant for years. How frustrating must it be to save up to buy a house and it's got loads of problems, like normal problems. How even more frustrating must it be if it's infested with demons? I mean, there needs to be some sort of estate agent clause where they have to tell you that. You know? I feel like in some states... No. Demon infestation? Yes. I feel like in some states in America they... They do are obliged to tell you if someone has died in the house. Yeah, potentially. But there's definitely a website where you can look up whether or not somebody has died in your property in America. I mean, I'd say if your house is over 40 years old, the chances of someone dying in your house is probably quite high. Yeah, they're probably it's probably pretty reasonable. So it's probably not worth looking up. Or maybe you might look up for violent murders. I don't know if I'd want to know, really. If I had that option here and I looked it up and I found out that somebody was violently murdered in our house, I'd be like... Oh, well, that's me fucked. I will never be able to stay here on my own because I'll be pure paranoid. No, I mean, don't look up the house you're living in. Look up the house you're about to buy. Oh, okay, yeah. Good point. Because then you can dodge it, can't you? You can dodge that bullet, but you would be livid moving into a house. I mean, in the beginning, you'd be like, cool, it's like sweeping the floors and stuff. Amazing. Make me a cup of tea. Put that kettle on, ghosty. Don't turn up in the middle of the night with your broken neck freaking me out so I've got a point about that later which we'll come to I see that you were writing notes by the way I, I must say the Facebook group are loving the fact that you're taking notes at the moment <laughs> so the reason I'm writing notes is because my memory is really bad and uh, I was triggered by the start of your story where you listed off like seven names and I was like if I don't start taking notes there's no way I'm going to remember any of these names well I purposely tried to keep the experiences to Andrea and Cynthia yeah because I knew that if I was throwing in loads of names no one would be able to follow it so yeah. Obviously, if you've got loads of kids, a cheap, large farmhouse, even if it takes all your savings, is probably quite attractive, I'd imagine, because there's loads of space. Chances are that they'll at least be able to have, you know, only share a room with one other child, maybe even get their own room. I can see the appeal to this. There was loads of acreage on the land as well that it came with. So it must seem like a dream move. So it must be so heartbreaking for it not to turn out that way. The kids interacting with it from dot day dot is really freaky yeah because <laughs> it's like they were obviously being targeted wasn't it and that, that story about cynthia being kissed to sleep every night and find it really comforting and then suddenly realizing that it hadn't been her mom and that um uh, that quote where it says that her mother used ivory soap and this entity smelled of flowers that's a 
that's a di- direct quote from Cynthia. I got the hijabas just from that. Because I, I got the impression from reading about it that she, like her mum would come in and kiss her, well she thought, and she'd be like asleep every time mm. it happened. And it was just a nice little interaction. So she didn't bother like turning over or looking at her. And I guess in a sleepy state, you wouldn't really no, and take also, notice. And I mean, it was, what, but it was the smell that triggered it for her. What kind of levels of super high anxiety or paranoia have you got to be not to presume that it's one of your parents coming in to give you a kiss in the middle of the night yeah yeah <laughs> like, oh mum's going to bed she's she's yeah. coming and give me a kiss I on mean, the way if you're, yeah. if, i'd be more concerned for Cynthia if her initial reaction the first time her mum did it would to be to sit up and check it was a mum like that's more yeah. concerning than the fact that she got hoodwinked by a ghost definitely and it's it's interesting that the ghost this but i don't know like i know they said there was nine entities in the house but this particular ghost was maternal towards the kids like that is really interesting and and seems to have been doing maternal things like what would have been in the 70s traditionally maternal like sweeping the house and all of that jazz yeah but i don't think that's the case i think that potentially sometimes malevolent spirits do that kind of thing to get you to what's the word to like lure you into a false sense of security yeah but to get you to validate them so if you feel comfortable, you're more likely to pay attention to it. That sounds like some Ed Warren bullshit to me. Probably does. But do you know what I mean? Like, it would make sense to me in my weird little mind that you start, they start off nice and then it's just about... Because I, I do think, I feel like there's some weight in that, paying like, paying attention to something. Oh, I fully agree. It's like, you know, not to compare children to demons, but if you pay attention to bad behaviour in children... The bad behaviour increases. And it's funny that demons sometimes take the form of children. <laughs> <laughs> and we've solved it. All children are demons. Um and I just think if you if that's the kind of if that's the kind of energy or power that you need to feed off to make yourself more powerful or make your existence stronger, and you know, we always read that the devil is the trickster, right? Then it makes sense to start with things that you're not going to ignore. So if someone's coming, if someone's doing the washing up every day, like if you get up every morning and the washing up is done, right? Which does happen in my life, I have to say. I know that's why you angled that, but thank you very much publicly for doing the washing up every morning. But if you get up, if it's, if it's not me and you get up every morning and the washing up is done, it's weird. I'd be happy with it. But it's kind of happy, right? Yeah, I'd be fine with it. Same way as if you, like, if the hoovering was done, which I can't take credit for because it's not me. <laughs> oh, I would, I hate hoovering. So I would be all for it. I'd be like, thanks, demon. Yeah. And so you're acknowledging it. So it would make sense to start like that if your long-term intention was to be malevolent. I would definitely take it too far though. And I'd be like, thanks, demon. And the next day I'd be like, demon, can you make dinner? <laughs> demon can you put a wash on the demon leaves demon's like fuck that I did not like, she is so fucking demanding that's what would happen but it just it just sounds like this it, with this story it's almost like that's the case I don't know whether there were nine things you've definitely well you've got the crooked smile man which yeah. is no not with that, that I mean they're very um, haunting of Hill House-esque like in my head yeah. Like the bent neck lady and yeah. oh god. Which you just... read in a really creepy way and I never want to hear you reading that voice again, thank you. <laughs> okay. Um and That's then you've got a little boy running around which I'm not really down with. And then Bathsheba we want to talk about later. So there's obviously a few that they've they've identified as being different. But it just it starts off so well. Yeah. And then it descends into chaos. And that's often the case with all of these things we look at. Whether you think that they're fabricated or whether you think that it's a little girl in a in a house in London leading the whole world on, or if you think it's a legitimate experience, it always tends to follow this this pattern, pattern where it starts quite innocuously and then you end up in this shit show. Yeah. So I'm gonna before we start talking about Bathsheba. So when I when I researched this episode, I was gonna read Andrea Perrin's book because she wrote a book about her experience that was the eldest daughter, and I didn't read it. And the reason I didn't read it is because I didn't have time this week. But luckily, loads of places have read it for me and had... Um, Is it your friend again? The guy that you always read? Brent Swanser. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't Brent Swanser today. <laughs> but what I did find was a really interesting link to a blog. So this guy had written this blog about the parent family haunting, but he was a historian. 
And there is absolutely no evidence that any of the, these deaths happened on this farm. Okay, interesting. So none of the, the like the the death of Prudence Arnold absolutely did happen. Didn't happen anywhere remotely near this farmhouse or even on the land. The there were there were obviously hangings in the area, um, because that is suicide is an unfortunate part of life and and tends to. Remote places tend to draw suicides, don't they? Yes, because they have less chance of getting found. Yeah. None of it happened on the farmhouse or even on the land. There were, you know, eight eight generations of families. People died of old age and illness. But the one I was really interested in was Bathsheba. She did exist. She was a real woman. She lived on the farm. Three of her children died, but they died of illness, as lots of children in the early 1800s would have. And... There was no evidence anywhere that she had been accused of murder or that there was any evidence of foul play in any of her children's lives. Uh, She had a child, one child that survived, that grew up and got married and took over the farm. And she died an old woman of a stroke on on the Mm -hmm. land and her and her husband. So you've ruined a really good story again. Yes, sorry. So there is no... There doesn't seem to be any historical evidence. Like she, she absolutely existed, but apparently it was Lorraine Warren that pushed the narratives about all of the bodies and all of the deaths that occurred in the house. So she said, "I'm sensing a death. I'm sensing a little girl called Prudence." And then, would you know, there's a a girl in the local area that was called Prudence that was horrifically murdered. And then she was like, I'm sensing a woman, Bathsheba. She was satanic, blah, 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 blah. I have to say, as an aside, and I apologise if this is your name, but Bathsheba is a badass name for a Isn't bad it? guy. Right? For a demon? Yeah. What a great yeah. name. It's Brilliant. It's a really good name. It's such a witchy name. Yeah, it is. It's I a love cool it. name. Like, it's a cool name. It's, it's not a name I'm necessarily scared of, but it, it gave power to the character, I think. If we ever had a child, I'd be like, oh, baby Bathsheba. What are you calling the child Bathsheba? Why? The Conjuring. Have you seen it? She's pretty badass. I mean, we know people that have named their children after many in witches, so there we go. <laughs> that took me a minute. I was like, what? <laughs> you can uh, you can DM me if you want to know what that's about. I'm not saying it on recording, but I no. will tell you. So yeah, I just think she's got a really cool name and that is a cool back. But oh, they're just I know you said you weren't going to bash Ed and Loza. Eddie and Loza. Eddie and Loza, but it just feeds into it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's difficult not to because... You can just you can just delegitimize everything and say, well, they were involved, so it, you know it was all ridiculous. Yeah, which actually, but actually we do because what you've said casts shadow on them as a couple and yes. what they do, but it doesn't actually take away from their experiences. No, no, so no. So all of that stuff was happening to them. Yes, and the family they didn't seek out Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ed and yeah. Lorraine Warren sought out them. Yeah. And they ended up asking them to leave because yeah. they said they didn't help. They didn't They didn't actually solve the problem at all. And they just ended up stuck with it until 10 years later. Yeah. Because they couldn't afford to move. Yeah. And as soon as they had enough money, they sold up the house and left and moved to Georgia. I mean, not cool for them. But I mean, it's cool for us because it means that you've given, although you've re- revealed this information about the historical background doesn't actually discredit them and what they experienced, does it? So we, no. don't, we still don't know what was going on in that. And actually it sounds like there's more credibility in a way to that because. And I guess if you were like in a desperate situation, say, say for example, all this stuff happened to this Mm. family, you bring in two people like Ed and Lorraine Warren who are going around doing conferences. They're on TV. They're doing all this crazy stuff. And there, this woman tells you the reason why this is happening is because of this historical event. You would be like, Oh, thank God. I'm not mad. This, this is really happening this is this is my version of evidence that I need right now. And I can see why people believed it and probably still believe it to this day. There is also a flip side to this as well. They've all written books, got publishing deals, made some money out of a movie. Maybe it didn't happen to the extent that they want us to believe that it happened. We, you know, we can't judge the, fab- the level of fabrication. No. But I feel like there's an element of truth to what they experienced because it seems to be the wrong order. If you were like Ed and Lorraine Warren came to this house or Ed and, or they reached out to Ed and Lorraine Warren, you'd be like, mm, okay. But actually it was almost the other one. But it just goes to, it's just that exploitation, isn't it? Again, of vulnerable people. And actually, like, we don't know what was going on in that house. And maybe Ed and Lorraine Warren just stirred shit up even more. 
you know what I mean? And actually, maybe they made it worse for them, and it's a situation that they can't get out of. And actually, it's just another story in their book. It's another thing for them to do tours and talks on. It's another notch on their belt for the next time they find another set of people that need their help. What is your opinion on Roger? That the entity was really loving towards him. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it. I don't understand it particularly. But then, if we if we're dealing with okay, let's let's not let's take skeptic cats off completely. Okay. Let's say we're dealing with multiple entities. Yeah. Maybe this is the same one that was tucking the kids yeah. to bed, and maybe she's just reliving her family, and actually maybe. the mum doesn't play a role in that. I'd imagine because she is the mum. <laughs> there was a really interesting. There were, I didn't include it in the story because it made me feel uncomfortable. But I feel more comfortable talking about it now mm-hmm. because we're dissecting it a little bit. But Andrea in the book alludes to an entity that visited a male entity that visited all the girls at nighttime, and she alludes to. She never says it, but she she said something like I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like. Can you imagine an evil man having free reign over five little girls, right? And that is a that is a seriously loaded statement. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's very yeah. loaded. You can do it that what you will, but for me, that was it. Didn't feel right to put that into a story about the, about the paranormal mm. when actually it screams alarm bells of something else going on in that house. Yeah. Even though it was a, a tiny part of what the the, the wider narrative yeah. that was the bit that. I couldn't stop thinking about afterwards. So I think that something happened in that house that maybe it was easier for them to say this is paranormal than for them to accept something else awful that was happening. Mm. Which you would be surprised how often that actually happens in real life. Yeah. I haven't really got anything to say on that. Yeah, sorry. That was... I just felt like it it would be inappropriate not to mention that fact because you know obviously I put all the research links in the description and if people are going to read it and go hang on you very conveniently left this really alarm bell ringing part of this story out but yeah well this is depressing it was quite a loaded statement though I'll give you that yeah it, it yeah and it was it wasn't it it made me feel very uncomfortable I have to say can I just um ask you a slight it's a very off tangent question I apologize Go for, for it. it but it's just occurred to me you know the, sto- the fabricator story of Bathsheba yes what was the significance of saying that her body when she died her body turns to stone I don't really know because it's... it's not like they found a stone body somewhere is it it's very Medusa-esque yeah but then Medusa when you look at the story of Medusa she wasn't actually a villain just FYI she was a bit of a legend and it was all circumstantial it wasn't her fault <laughs> hey, is... I played Kid Icarus. She's a pretty bad boss. She tried to kill me on numerous occasions. But it, I don't know what the relevance is for her turning to stone. No, I, I, I thought don't it was know. a really like odd bit of detail, other than to say potentially that she was supernatural. But if I was fabricating a story about someone being supernatural, I'd want to put something in that couldn't be disproved. Like if she was stone, there would be a stone body knocking around somewhere. Right? I would love to know if her coming to Carolyn with a broken neck and saying, you know, get out of my house or whatever. If that happened before or after Lorraine and Ed Warren had visited, because actually the timelines on all the different sources that I looked at are all quite different. Mm. So it's difficult to know actually when, when stuff happened. There are people who live in the house now. And? They sued Warner Brothers. Is that who made the film? Yep. They sued Warner Brothers because after the making of The Conjuring, they just had people turning up at the house all the time. And they kept finding satanic ritual stuff all out in their yard. And all this mad stuff was happening. So they were livid. But they have had experiences. But not anything remotely on the scale of what the parent family experienced. But the woman who lives there is a skeptic. She's not interested. She's been living there for years. But she says that she does hear footsteps. She hears voices in other rooms. There was one time she was sitting in one of the rooms and a blue ball of light zipped around the room and then exited. And she has been plagued by paranormal investigators ever since the film came out. But I guess if you're... So I, that sort of lends credence a little bit to what 
to what I was saying prior to you dropping a bombshell. Um, in that, maybe it is a case of they were experiencing something and actually they gave it more credence than they should have done. And so yeah. they felt it on a much larger scale because it doesn't surprise me that you're saying that a skeptic lives there and she experiences things, but it's not on the scale. Because I think if a skeptic is experiencing things, they're likely to just go, I'm not going to pay that attention. Yeah, I'm not bothered. Much like your mum does when she's working. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to think about that. Definitely just shouldn't be happening. Just going to ignore it. Yeah. Just going to ignore it. And actually, what does that do? Where do they, What do they feed off of? There's nothing to feed off of, is it? Whereas if you're... If you're constantly on edge. Yeah. And actually, I think it's worse if your kids are experiencing something and you're the parent. Because it's part of your parenting instincts, isn't it? To worry for them. So if your kid comes in and says, you know, I've been talking to my friend, Roger. No, Roger's the dad. I've yeah. been talking to my friend, Johnny. Like, okay, that's fine. I've got. To... But then if they're saying, oh, you know, there's this weird lady that's been kissing me to sleep every night. Then you're like, then you start to worry, don't you? And then you're paying it credence because actually you're not, you're not saying, I believe it happens, but you're worrying about your kids. So it's a different crime. It's, it's, I don't know if you work, if you work on the basis that they feed on energies, it's a negative energy, isn't it? Being created from that. So it must be harder when there's kids experiencing it. Yeah. If you're an adult, you can write it off as something else or choose to ignore it. But if your kids are being affected by it, how do you ignore it? Yeah. And then you... And then you're you paying give it. The, you give you not only give the save the entity is a real thing. You not only give the entity attention, but you give your kids attention. Yeah. So if it's not real, if the kids, if it's only a tiny thing that's happened that a kid has exaggerated or become irrationally frightened of, you're feeding into it with the child as well. So yeah. the child is obviously going to go, and then this happened, and then this happened. Which I think is potentially like as we said, what happened in the infield haunting, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, and is is further reason why you should never buy your child a children's book that says it's okay to have an imaginary friend. Further evidence for that fact. So I'm I'm really curious to know actually what listeners think about this. So if you are in the Facebook group, feel free to let us know what you think. This is one of the biggest cases, uh, like in the world, you know. And the Conjuring has been such a successful movie franchise that it's kind of given it more and more attention like what do you think do you think this family were plagued in the way that they claim to have been or do you think it was played up or exaggerated or they got carried away with the narrative or was it something and I think you have to take those two narratives very separately as well you've got the narrative of the family and then you've got the narrative of Ed and Loza Oh, I went with the narrative of know, the family for I know, this. but I'm just yeah. saying, but the, the, it's the Ed and Loza narrative that's informed the country. Yes. So look at both. Would you like some new reviews? Yeah, please. So we have a review from Auntie Carrie. Auntie Carrie? Yes. Oh. Creepily wonderful. I stumbled across this podcast and am enjoying every moment. The domestic banter between Emma and Dan brings some welcome levity to otherwise terrifying stories about ghosts, aliens, cryptids and the like. There is a good balance to keep both believers and sceptics interested and a variety of explanations and entertained are entertained on all subjects. The weekly movie review is also enjoyable, with even scaredy cats like me considering watching some of the films <laughs> reviewed. I'm loving binging every episode and can't wait to see what comes next from these two. Keep up the fantastic work. Gorgeous, Auntie Carrie. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. And Sweetie0407 said funny and creepy at the same time. I fell in love with the hosts right away during the first episode. They are funny and witty and their banter is the greatest. Their stories are creepy and the way Emma tells them makes them even better. I love how Emma and Dan give their opinions on the stories at the end as well. I've recommended this podcast to so many of my friends. And finally... Haley D. Lynn, who said, so, so, so amazing. I've been listening to Emma and Dan for a good few months now, and this is hands down my favourite podcast. I binge listened to all the episodes in the beginning, and I've been binging all the episodes again. This podcast is the only thing that makes getting through work easy because I'm so focused on their spooky stories. I love that they are serious about the topics, but they have quite a bit of giggles too. My favourite episode is the Skinwalker episode. Don't mention Skinwalkers. <laughs> that way to ruin my day. My boyfriend and I listened to it while we were driving through New Mexico and he's completely hooked too. I would, oh, well, but no. absolutely no, not. Wrong choice, wrong choice. <laughs> Thank you both for your work. Lots of love from Colorado. Thank you, Thank you. so <laughs> much for your reviews. This was actually quite a serious episode and I didn't expect that it would be. It's because you ruled out bashing Ed and Loza at the beginning, that's why. Yeah. 
If I was, if we were bashing Ed and Laza, we probably would have had more of a laugh. But you didn't mention Nostradamus here, so we're all good. Nosferatu. <laughs> but I just, I just, I can't with the Ed and Laza bashing anymore. You know, it's just we're saying the same things over and over again. So there's no point, really, is there? No. So if you enjoyed this week's episode and you want to find us, the best way that you can find us that you shout can, really loudly is shout out your window. We'll hear you somewhere on the wind. <laughs> the best way that you can find us is to go to our brand new gorgeous website. The link to which is in the description, which gives you all of our socials. It leads you to our Patreon page. It also gives you our email address and demonstrates some beautiful merch from our listeners and some great artwork. That was look good, wasn't it? It's very good. Emma built the website, by the way, if you didn't guess from the tone. It's very good. I did, and I hadn't a clue what I was fucking doing, and it was very stressful, I have to say. I don't know how anybody works in IT, because I cannot <laughs> hack it. It just makes me mad. And on that note, we shall see you next week. Bye! Bye!